Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, my name is Chip Bishop. I'm the Director of Student Programs here um, at Cato. And uh, I'm really excited to have all of you guys here. I'm very excited to be here uh, with my wonderful panelists uh, to discuss kind of something that we've all probably experienced in our personal lives, but all probably have a lot of questions about. How do we combine the space that we work in, the ideas, politics, economics, with the graphical content that engages us, sucks us in, uh, makes us want to watch Saturday morning cartoons when we're kids, and makes us want good infographics uh, and good special effects in TV now, and how do we merge those two worlds together? Uh, to, to discuss this, we've got some great people up here. Um, so I'm going to first start by casting uh, kind of a big uh, macro picture of this whole idea, this whole space that we're working in of how to combine ideas uh, and pictures. And then uh, each panelist is going to talk about how they've worked uh, in this space specifically. So let's see, the clicker here. Images have been a part of our lives as humans for like as long as you can basically remember since the petroglyphs found in like all sorts of continents all over the place. And because they convey meaning, right? They convey meaning um, of, of things that are happy, things that are sad, things that are dangerous. Uh, images capture something that, that words just can't, right? A picture's worth a thousand words. We've all heard this. Also, images are very important. They're very American, right? You look back, and, and uh, Benjamin Franklin, actually, he took on the pseudonym uh, of, of this guy named Richard, uh, and he wrote this, like, this article. He wrote this, this publication for you know, 20 years, uh, and in that, he wrote political cartoons. We've seen a lot of them. He wrote poems. He wrote all sorts of stuff. Uh, and also, you, know, you can see that The Adventures of Mr. Obadiah Oldbook he really had like a lot of entertainment value, very simple pictures, but this was you know, nearly 200 years ago. So pictures and images and graphics and, and graphic novels have been a part of the U.S. experience, uh, and yet we don't really have them all today. I did some research for this event. I was really excited. Amity wrote us and said that she had this new book coming out. So I started doing a lot of research, and what did the academic material say about this space? Right? Like I'd never seen really some free market materials come out that are also graphic novels. So I started researching, and I found uh, this interesting study that said um, that ideas need to be combined with images to create social change. Like, that's the impetus for social change. Whether, you know, that image is, uh, you know, a still, or whether it's a video form, or whether it's a graphic novel, uh, you have to combine those in order to elicit change, either sharing information and education, or persuasion or entertainment. And that kind of led me to develop this model. And this model is basically going to capture kind of the struggle that, that both of uh, the groups of panelists that we have up here face. And that is, on the one side, you've got entertainment. And most of the population likes entertainment of some sort. And on the other side of you know, the, the x-axis, you have information, you have education, right? You've got like the empirics, and you have a much smaller population. And that's the space that we often work at uh, here in the policy world when we're trying to create political change, when we're trying to take ideological change, we end up having a very small population. So what we need to do is shift back towards that entertainment line, and we end up somewhere in this happy medium. And you see the little triangle there. It's kind of like the pivot. Right? If you err too much on the side of entertainment, it tips that way, and you lose the education factor. If you stay too far on the information education side, you don't have enough people to actually matter. So you need to shoot for this, this basic medium. And we're going to pull out some of the questions here because we've got you know, scholars and we've got artists. And uh, they had a lot of arguments, I'm sure, a lot of discussion back and forth about where to draw this line. It's, some people, 
have actually succeeded at capturing this line and have really well balanced the idea of entertainment and ideas. Mouse is a classic example of this. I think it sold over a million copies and is basically uh, a graphic novel format of a biography of this guy's father's experience um, when he was you know, growing up in, in the time of the Nazis. And you look at the pictures here that he captured. What did he capture? And in you know, the question, I don't see if you can see it, he says, like, we had nowhere to go. So we walked in the direction of somewhere, but nowhere to go. But you've got the imagery here of that, you know, what do we have here in the white? We have the, the swastika, right? So the graphic is able to capture all of these different flags in our brains, that, and it triggers in one image rather than taking paragraphs to explain it and state it outright. So Mouse was, it actually won the Pulitzer Prize after it, was, uh, it finished its, you know, 11-year series in 1992. But it's difficult to balance the message in the medium. And some works succeed, and some works, you might recognize on here, uh, over the last years, a couple more have succeeded. Who watched Magic School Bus here ever in your life, right? You remember that. It was engaging, it was interesting, and it was educational. But you look at Khan Academy, the, the YouTube U, you look at the graphic novels, these are all science-based. What we see is that in the U.S., people are trending more to start with uh, science and how you convey these ideas, but not a lot focus on the social sciences. But this is kind of a unique uh, aspect of, the, of America's existence because we transitioned away from that, from when Benjamin Franklin was writing his periodical to now when there's not a big appetite for it. But in other places, other cultures have a much deeper and diverse penetration of new media uh, for education. I taught English in Korea for two years after college, and I was teaching a private lesson, and I looked, and my student, he's just a single kid, and he had an entire library filled with graphic novels covering Korean history, science, math. I don't even know how you do a graphic novel for math, but he had them, <laughs> right? Uh, so they had a very deep penetration of these ideas, but we haven't really seen that come to fruition here in the space that we work. And that brings us to today. We're getting there. If you look, uh, we've got a copy of their book here, The Forgotten Man, which itself was a bestseller, but this is a graphic novel. Uh, and I just checked today to verify. I trust Amity, but she told me it was a New York Times bestseller in this category. But I had to check just so I could give you the screenshot, and there you have it. It beat out uh, the new X-Men novel based on the movie that came out. It beat out a bunch of other series that are really famous. <laughs> And those congratulations are, are, are really due to them. So congratulations, you guys. Uh, New York Times bestseller for a book on the Great Depression. Pretty interesting. So we also are joined up here by, by Scott Barton, who directs Learn Liberty, uh, which is a site that, that combines uh, ideas and video to make it persuasive. And they've hit, they struck something. They started this three years ago, and within that time, they've received over 20 million views on over 300 videos, and they've worked with 70 faculty members to, pre to prepare these videos. Who knew that you had 70 faculty members that like, agreed with these kind of ideas in the first place, let alone they're lending their name and their face to this. And that's another idea that we're going to address, is how taboo is going on camera and talking about these ideas. How taboo is writing a comic book when you're an aspiring academic. Um, so those are the things that we're going to discuss today. Uh, and I also just want to highlight a couple other actors in this space. You've got female force, uh, Anne Rand by John Blundell of uh, the Institute uh, 
for Economic Affairs in, in the UK. And you've got Under the Staircase, this uh, an economic adventure series for kids, which is a novel series that, that addresses these economic issues. And you've got Cronies by Generation Opportunity, right? This new series of, you know, kind of this G.I. Joe fashion uh, of, of, you know, documentary on these ideas. So I'm really excited today. I'm going to introduce uh, our panelists. We're going to have a little different than a typical policy forum here. Uh, we're going to have each panelist come up and kind of share some opening remarks. And then we're going to have a lot more discussion back and forth, probing into how in the world did you make this work, why in the world were you crazy enough to start it, and what can we do moving forward. So I'm going to start by introducing Amni Schles. Uh, she writes a column for Forbes and serves as the chairman of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. Uh, she's the author of the New York Times bestsellers Coolidge, The Forgotten Man, and The Greedy Hand. And she chairs the jury for the Hayek Book Prize of Ma the Manhattan Institute. And she lives in Brooklyn, New York, and has her bachelor's in English from Yale University. It's not in the book. I had to do it from memory. So, um, so come on up, Amity. And I want you first to address where in the world did you get this crazy idea and what made you think it could actually work and lay that out for us. Oh, oh, wow. Can you hear me? I feel like this is a little far away. We want to thank you, first of all, for coming, and Chip and Cato for preparing this for, for us. Uh, I'm trying to think. I, I think the number one um, problem that a group uh, like the people in this room has is we take ourselves very seriously. Uh, our cause is very serious. Things are wrong. We see a necessity to, to fix those things, but sometimes... Um, we also, you know, we get a little, uh, we become control freaks in, in dealing with the material. Uh, I wrote this book, The Forgotten Man, The History of the Great Depression, and that's a, a period which is very contentious and only very smart people can work in monetary, right? Most of us aren't smart enough to do monetary. You know, we're just tax people, right? <laughs> and then only the highest, smartest mathematician or engineer can do, you know, real monetary. And there's a lot of intimidation that goes on in that area. And there's a lot of uh, fight. There are many, many fights about the New Deal and why it didn't work. And, you know, uh, Nobel Prize winners have sat here and argued. And uh, other people are deeply intimidated. And that means a, that's a problem because actually uh, when, what I found in writing Forgotten Men was that what went wrong in the 30s was pretty clear. The government intervened too much. It caused great uncertainty through arbitrariness. We don't usually quantify uncertainty sufficiently. The, the VIX index is not enough. You know, various uh, stock market indices are not enough, but there's important work doing that now. Uh, the government made it worse, more or less, in the 1930s, sometimes involving money. Uh, so it wasn't that hard at all, uh, but it needed to be conveyed to a, a much greater audience. And even if a book like Forgotten Man, thanks in part to Cato um, and many of you, could sell a lot. My book said government made it worse. Well, that wasn't very satisfying. I kind of wanted to get all that I'd learned to a larger group, and I became um, impressed with cartoons, just as Chip said. Uh, for example, with Mouse, which um, actually my husband um, was the editor of at the Forward, a Jewish newspaper years ago before it, it had all these big prizes. I could see that. Uh, but there, you, you have to find the right artist um, the brilliant guy, not Paul, said it, cartoons are a gateway drug to content, and that that resonated with me. Gateway drug that works, uh, it, and they do they do convey. I went up to White River Junction, where a, a lot of cartoonists, Paul may know some of them, live, but they weren't the right ones. 
And I think finding the right artist is key. So I just say uh, finding Paul was like a blessing, and he made this book. Uh, you, this is a, uh, it's a different kind of effort because it's collaborative, and we talk through a number of questions. I'll just say briefly wh what sort of questions. Is that right, Chip? We, mm -hmm. we sought to address. Um, one, it was an adaptation from an extant book, uh, The Forgotten Man. How closely do you hew to the, the original book? I found, and I think Paul found too, he can speak for himself though, that we didn't really like to have a stentorian, preachy, modern um, speaker talking back, and then the Great Depression came, and then the government did this, in this very, again, teacherly voice. We wanted to have the story tell itself because it does, because the evidence is there. The government made it worse. So we actually did um, some novelization. We had a superhero in this book, Wendell Wilkie, the power executive, right? And, and power, electricity is related to superheroes. Uh, it was, uh, there was even a, a company called American Superpower, which was an electric company in the 20s. And uh, we let Wendell, who was a character in the book, tell the story. Oh, here's a, oh so we're going through the pictures. Sorry. This is, so I found Paul. And then I, um, you can keep going. That's Paul. Uh, and um, I'll back up and just say a couple things. This page is hard to see, and I'm sorry about that. We broke out some pictures for this. This is supposed to show an economic concept. We were thinking about economic concepts. This is um, the economic concept that, that tariffs don't work. This is a page about what a goof Herbert Hoover was. And um, <laughs> Paul and Chuck, who worked with us on this, and I came up with the idea um, of showing what a goofy was through his aging athleticism. Uh, he played a game of, with a medicine ball, uh, and once in a while he dropped the ball, and he also dropped the ball on tariffs. This is a discussion about the Smoot-Hawley tariff, which has been popularized. I mean, you, you, your parents have showed you, or you've seen yourself Ferris Bueller's Day Off and the scene about tariffs in there. Um, it, it, tariffs are inherently incomprehensible, uh, and uh, they're hard to explain, but uh, we tried to convey that he messed up, and he looked... He was a little bit vain about this counterproductive tariff, so that's what that picture did. I think you can move ahead just to the Keynes picture, a um, couple ahead, um, or one, one back? Yeah, uh, yeah. This is a, a scene of, I really wanted to n convey not only a few ideas, but also some figures you know and maybe don't like. This is John Maynard Keynes writing to Roosevelt. He actually did, this material comes from a letter he wrote to President Roosevelt, Keynes was to the right of Roosevelt um, on the treatment of business. He said, don't treat business like lions and wolves. Treat businessmen like domestic animals. <laughs> Herd them along and they'll be fine. And I thought that was very funny. But to give you an idea of how much the artwork mattered and how perfectly Paul did this, you can see that we got China that suited the period, right? Yes. Um, so that's that's um, kind of liberty-like China that they would have had. Uh, and Paul's uh, from from Canada and closer to England than we are and knows all these things. Um, uh, and But this page took a lot of work to make it really look like Keynes, to make him look as tendentious as he was because he was kind of bossy because he was very smart, Keynes, uh, writing Re Roosevelt and laughing at himself. And I'll just say, I think, a couple things more. Maybe migrant mother would be good. To just to give you more of a feel for it, this is an iconic image from the New Deal. Do you know it? How many people know it? Right? It's what you get in school. Oh, they, they were poor. They were really poor. It's true. They were hungry. Florence was hungry. That's her name. But what I had discovered in writing Forgotten Man Print was this picture wasn't quite what it seemed. It was actually a setup by the government, right? Oh. You know that the government sent out the photographer. 
it wasn't that Life magazine alone sent out the photographer or Look. I think it appeared in Look. This was bought and paid for by a, a nice department that was really a propaganda department of the government to show the need for the New Deal. And when you know that, well, you look at this iconic photo a bit differently, and some of you may know also the story that the family of this lady were a little irritated at this picture because it made them look weak. It made them look like they were on the dole, and they were very proud people. So there's this whole backstory which I discovered and which people know um, for the print Forgotten Man. So Paul managed to draw her so beautifully and then also tell the story, I don't have the, the pages here, of how this was a setup. This was a setup to get support for a government program. That's different. Um, and uh, that's an example of us uh, doing through pictures uh, what doesn't come off as well through, through words. And that's one of my favorite pictures in, in, the, whole, in the whole book. Um, what else should we say? Want to show FDR? Sure. Um, OK, so here's a question for this audience. How much, I mean, there are very many touchy questions. How much do you vilify Roosevelt? You would think a lot. I mean, uh, um, however, I, I, I think the, the story speaks for itself. I don't hate Roosevelt. I just think his economic policy was wrong, right? And I see the damage from it. Some of us might support what Roosevelt did in World War II. So we drew this once. Paul drew it. Um, you and you couldn't see his eyes, which made him look a bit scary, right, behind the glasses. And then we went back and put the eyes in because we didn't want to demonize I, in this instance, maybe that was a wrong decision, but that's where we, we were. The story, if it's strong, it tells itself. You don't need to resort to cartoon, even in cartoon, <laughs> uh, which was very interesting, and that was another thing Paul taught me. You, want, you ready to move on? Or yeah, here's a want. bit more. Um, this is um, uh, one of the things I needed to draw out, and I was hard narratively to figure out how to do it, um, was to bring out the forgotten man idea, which is from the philosopher William Graham Sumner, who said, um, A wants to help the poor man, X at the bottom, and so does B. But there might be a problem when A and B get together and pass a law that coerces C, a third party, into funding their perhaps dubious project for X. So here's Sumner. We actually made him a character, the author of this, this little formula. And we tried to bring it out in the book. We had a student reading it. It's really at the core of the book. The forgotten man is the taxpayer um, and the, the quiet superhero, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this is a, a Paul's um, family. Part of his family came from Russia, or all of it, maybe even? No, father's side. His father's side, right? So Paul, um, we, we tried to draw the Soviet tyranny um, because in Forgotten Man, Americans go over there and get bamboozled by the Soviets. And I think these are just some of his strongest pages. The infatuation with planning and metrics of, um, of economists uh, and of, of central planners. This is a US central planner, Rex Togwell, who came back sort of like Rahm Emanuel or something and planned everything uh, in the New Deal. But first, he went to Russia, and he said, yes, I see it. And he loved the, the hugeness of it. We're all um, kind of uh, seduced by large Right with China, sometimes large is so good we forgive a lot. So Paul tried to capture this, and um, Rex Tugwell fell in love with centrally, centrally planned wheat. I just think Paul's particularly strong on Soviet stuff because it's it's in his family or because he has given it attention. Um, most artists cannot do this. You have to have an appreciation of history. You can't just be a social scientist. 
Um, so uh, he's a very rare artist. One me there. You want me to introduce Paul? And then yeah, or it's a time, uh, maybe go, with Trotsky we'll introduce Paul. Yeah. So these are, I think these are particularly wonderful, these Trotsky drawings. These, most of these um, sentences were actually said, including Trotsky's comment about bubblegum chewers and his contempt for them. <laughs> and Paul will explain uh, more. This is a meeting of Americans with Trotsky. Mm -hmm. All right, so now it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Paul Revolt. Um, I was really excited to hear of this project because Amity wrote about it, and then like she said she got a, a professional illustrator who had uh, experienced drawing Iron Man and Superman. So I was like, okay, let's check this guy out. So like I checked him out, and they were like really awesome comic covers. So I was like, this is very exciting. I grew up on comics, reading them, uh, aspiring to be them. And uh, Paul really did a great job capturing that. And you know, I talked to him before this event, uh, and he just did a great job translating Amity's work into a new work of his own. Uh, he's a Toronto-based illustrator and comic book artist. Uh, he co-created the 1980s icon Mr. X. His work includes making comics, writing stories for graphic novels such as Flight 5 and Ad House Books Project Superior, illustrating comic book covers for Superman and Iron Man, and creating background designs for Warner Brothers TV animation. He also does a lot of other projects on, on the side, so I'm really excited to have him here. And come on up and, and share. Let's use this picture as kind of the walkthrough of how this whole process went between you guys discussing. First of all, thank you for having me to the Cato Institute. Yep, thank you. Um, so I guess I could say that this project was a real challenge. It was the challenge of my career. And thank you also to Amity for inviting me to work on it with her. Uh, so to the point here, um, when I say it was a real challenge, you know, normally I'd be used to doing single covers, as Chip said, Iron Man covers, things like that, uh, or other kinds of illustration jobs. I did a lot of animation background work. But here we have a project that literally on every page needed just a ton of research. I mean, I had folders and folders of research photos on my hard drives. And you also had some kind of, uh, I guess you could say, almost semi-stumper type things, because what you want to do with this kind of material is the death of it would be as if it's too dry, and you get what's called in the comics business talking heads. So if you have page after page of talking heads, which is to say, you know, just pictures of people sitting, not doing anything, uh, inertly talking about policy or whatnot. That can be excellent in a prose book, but in a comic book, much like in a movie, it has to move. So my challenge as a cartoonist working with Amity was to give it some life and movement. And again, here we have a historical figure, Leon Trotsky, revisualizing a scene in a room where he meets uh, the, these emissaries from America, and, you know, that's quite a challenge. So I'm sitting there going, uh, how do I make this interesting? Fortunately, in the script that Amity provided, there were some nice little gems, like this is apparently a matter of a historical record that he was irritated because some of the Americans were chewing gum, blowing bubbles, what was it, Amity, with their bovine chewing habits. It's, you know, that he went off and wrote some kind of letter or something. So, of course, that's pure gold for a cartoonist. That's the kind of stuff you need. And that's really the process, Amity, I had. I was always the guy who was kind of harping from my side of it, saying, you know, I need, I need really good stuff to put on the page that I can work with to give it some cartooning life. Um, so there are many instances like this that involved coming up with uh, 
kind of interesting cartooning so people could get interested in the characters and also authentic backgrounds, uh, locations. The book has, I don't know the total count of characters, but there's all kinds of different uh, historical personalities, locations, everything from when they went on the trip to the Soviet Union, you know, we needed to find out, like, for me, you, you know, you can write in a script, they're on the deck of this ocean liner discussing what they're going to find in the Soviet Union. So for Paul, the challenge is I sit in my studio and I go, how the heck do I draw that? You know, it's like, it's not, it's easier said than done. Um, so, yeah, that's, I guess I'm looping back to the first thing I said. This is a real challenge. I learned a ton doing this job, and I'm very proud and happy to have done it. Great. Um, I mean, when you're still up there, I'll, I'll just throw out a quick question for you. Um, so looking, like you already discussed like kind of how hard it was, mm -hmm. um, but can you explain kind of the interchange? Like, was there tension where, you know, we kind of showed that graph at the beginning where you're, you're stuck with the economist on this side and the entertainer and engager on this side. What were some cases in the book where you had that back and forth uh, to pull her towards your direction? Yeah, the phrase that I think I came up with at one point, and I said to Amity, you know, we need to think of this as kind of as a docudrama. You know, I don't know if they use that phrase in TV anymore, but there was that time in the, was it the 70s or 80s where they were calling everything a docudrama. So now that's not to say that we took liberties with historical fact, because we didn't want to do that. But it was my way of saying, um, you know, and realizing as a cartoonist, as Chip has said, there's a, there's a line between, you know, being too crazy with the cartooning and being too over at the other end with data. So I was always working with that to try and find that, that middle point. Does that answer your question? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's great. You, I mean, you spared us the details of, like, the, the brawls you guys <laughs> had. No, I, I, I can think of one of them. Um, just to stick to the uh, ships going over, the name of the ship that the men came back on, the Social Democrats who were going to run the New Deal, was Leviathan. <laughs> so I'm like, make it big. And Paul says, good. So you, can you, I hope you can, we, I don't even know, we didn't use all the pages, but that was an example where having the name of the ship at the end was kind of a little joke, right? Um, but to, to be sure that we actually had something like that at the end of each page. We had uh, some back and forth about how you draw the forgotten man that's not on the screen, but the actual forgotten man is hammering away at some kind of like an anvil. Thing. And Paul had it one way, and I wanted another, and Paul won. Uh, I mean, this is a collaborative process. If the page you're looking at, um, let's just count who all worked on it. Um, that's real Russian. I was, uh, Paul, I was quite anxious to get good Russian, um, a, a, a um, research associate at the Council on Foreign Relations where I worked, Nikolai Krylov, then translated that into Russian carefully for me. He is Russian-American. Um, and Paul, um, we, there's another page when they were in the Soviet Union where they go to visit an art show, um, and we had to verify that the art show really happened. It was the Printer Union art show. And that it was right then. Um, when the bell rang behind Stalin, there's a bell, we had to be sure you really could hear a bell from the Kremlin to, to do with the question of religious liberty because call, Stalin was stamping out the church. And I'm, uh, So often um, I would want something in the pictures that Paul wouldn't. I, I will say Paul understands uh, the importance of simplicity, and he dragged me over from complexity to simplicity probably not far enough. Uh, this is, these books need to be far simpler than you imagine. 
um, but quite a good way. Insofar as this book is clear, it's due to Paul. Thank you. Well, yeah, and the docudrama comment I made earlier, it's just really the same thing as what Chip's saying, that it has to be entertaining because the book itself has to be readable. That's kind of like the candy coating that uh, keeps people chewing, and then inside there's the actual content because I believe in the content of this book. It's a serious book, but when I was brought onto the project, I realized, you know, if, again, if it's, if it's too dry, people will just stop at a certain point. So our challenge was to rework the material, adapt it into the comics medium, and uh, really we eventually ended up just kind of reworking the entire thing. Uh, and as Amity had said earlier, we introduced the narrator, Wendell Wilkie, who's both the kind of in the framing sequence, he's a narrator, but he's also a character in the story, as those of you who've seen it will have seen. Excellent. I'll ask one more question. Sure. Uh, why did you do this? Right, you've got a lot of work on the side, you're very talented. What made you venture and spend years of your life doing something like this? And then has that cost you anything working in a sphere that, you know, he wrote a, a, an article in the Wall Street Journal just last week talking about what it's like to be a conservative or libertarian working in a medium that's gotten so progressive that Superman declared uh, he was a citizen of the world and renounced yeah, his U.S. Re citizenship, right? Yeah. So, like, why did you do it? And then what consequences may you face because of it? Uh, it? You know, the direct consequences are hard to measure. You may not be considered completely part of the club uh, because, you know, I would say it's fair to say that most people that are artistic, at least in Canada where I live in Toronto, uh, they would hew towards the left wing of things in terms of their general beliefs. I mean, there's a mixture of people. Um, but when I read this book, it closely accorded with my own beliefs. I feel very strongly that younger people... As a parent, I feel younger people should be exposed to uh, other ideas other than the progressivist kind of menu of ideas which have become the default uh, sort of by osmosis has slipped into the culture. Everybody, they, they've become such a ground level of thinking that everybody can't even see that they're thinking with these ideas. Um, so when I read, when I was approached about this project and I read it and I understood what was being symbolized by Sumner with the forgotten man about redistributionism, uh, I just felt very strongly that it accorded with what I'd experienced in my life as a, I don't know, as a mini capitalist, you know, mini evil capitalist. I've been a freelance artist for 35 years. Uh, I came by my own beliefs honestly, and as Chip alluded to from some of my family's experiences with communism in the Soviet Union, I have a deep hatred for communism and anything to do with it. Um, and, uh, you know, so... That made it, a, what do you call it, a no-brainer for me to work in this project. Uh, and, you know, I, so I put my full force into it, and it was a real commitment. It took many years, three or four years of solid effort, but uh, it was worth it. Great. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you. So we'll get back to some of the more, uh, some more of the frames that they covered, but I want to take a moment to introduce Scott Barton, uh, who's going to give a little presentation of his own, and then we'll, we'll jump back into... I'd like you guys to talk through this chicken story that you guys mentioned. Uh, we'll get back to that. Um, but I want to transition out to Scott um, and pull up your bio real quick. Um, I know him really well, but I just don't want to get it wrong. So um, Scott's the Senior Director of Online Programs at the Institute for Humane Studies. Uh, over the past two years, uh, he has uh, led the Institute's Learn Liberty venture, uh, creating dynamic new online educational resources um, that are, are bringing the ideas of liberty to millions of students. We already mentioned he's created over 300 videos uh, that have reached you know, over 20 uh, million views. So that's, 
really impressive. Uh, he joined uh, IHS in 2004 as a program assistant and went on to direct the Institute's Cook Summer Fellow Program for a few years um, and then graduated to overseeing IHS's suite of career development programs. Um, he also has a, a master's degree in economics from George Mason University. We were classmates. Uh, we actually carpooled to, to school together, so uh, Scott and my relationship is, is very exciting. Um, he's also an alum of IHS, uh, and he graduated from Grinnell uh, with his bachelor's in philosophy before coming here to work. So let's, let's hear what you got, Scott. Thanks, Chip. Uh, so uh, at IHS, our main challenge was to uh, do the education that we'd done in person and translate that online. So IHS had run in-person seminars for college students where we have professors talking kind of like in this format, uh, and we were really happy with that, but we wanted to reach students online. And so how do we translate those, uh, those ideas that we'd done in person into a format that, uh, that worked well online? And so what we chose to do is online video. Uh, we observed that young people were spending more and more of their time online, uh, particularly on YouTube, uh, which was a, a fairly new platform that students were spending a ton of time on. And it, they were at, it was, YouTube was actually, in the 2008 election, uh, the second most popular search engine behind Google for people looking for ideas about politics. So we thought this was a huge opportunity to reach uh, more people with a message of liberty. Uh, and so, as Chip mentioned, uh, three years ago, we started experimenting with, uh, with making videos. Uh, and we actually, uh, we actually, some of our first videos fell into ex the exact trap that Paul was talking about. They were talking heads. Just put a camera in front of a professor. That's going to be interesting, right? Uh, well, we found out pretty quickly that that was horribly boring. Uh, those videos weren't watched very much. Um, I think we were right to choose professors as the messengers in our videos. Uh, we, thought, we thought that the professors lended some good academic credibility to what we were talking about. And then about a year ago, we did a study of um, college students that kind of verified that, where we found that they trust uh, parents, uh, professors, and friends more than any other groups, uh, including elected officials, cultural figures, journalists, uh, and so forth. So uh, we think we were right uh, with the professors being the messengers, but in order to succeed in a video format, they needed something more than that. Um, and I think the key there is using the elements that, of the video space uh, effectively so that uh, it's not just the professor talking, but it's the visual space that, that working in video uh, gets you. So we started adding animations to our videos to supplement the message and not only enhance the educational quality of the message, um, but enhance the, uh, the entertainment value. So I want to show you an example of a video that we did. Um, this has actually been our best performing video. It's called Social Cooperation, Why Thieves Hate Free Markets. Uh, it's gotten over 1.3 million views. Um, and so I'll uh, let you see a little bit about uh, the first uh, minute or so. I know how to get a free suit. All I have to do is go to Macy's, get a suit, charge it, and then when the bill comes, rip it up. Ethical issues aside, you see the main problem with this approach is that I can only do it once. The next time I go to Macy's, they'll know, because they made a note of it last time, that I rob suits and they won't give me another one. But I have a clever idea. I'll go to Penny's and get a free suit there. But hang on. When I try to get my free suit from Penny's, they won't give me one either. 
Macy's has told them that I'm a suit thief. That's odd. One view of the marketplace is that it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world of hostile competitors. The philosopher Thomas Hobbes saw the whole world that way. Since Macy's and Penny's are competitors, you might expect that Macy's would hope that I would rob Penny's next. That would even things out. <laughs> but they don't. In fact, they share information about thieves. They've figured out that in the long run, it's in their mutual best interests to help each other crack down on theft. That's more important to them than short-term getting even. If they didn't share what they know, they'd be cut off from a tremendous information network about theft. So helping the other guy isn't contrary to their self-interest at all. Despite their being competitors, they have a strong incentive to be cooperative. Even more interesting is that they came up with this system on their own. It wasn't a grand design by enlightened rulers, a top-down plan. Rather, it was a bottom-up system that evolved organically by the merchants as they figured out how to manage their affairs. Uh, so I think this is a good example of some of the ways that we've been able to make this educational content more interesting. Uh, you know, most obviously we have kind of the South Park style animations go going on in the video. Um, and in, in, in one thing that's really interesting about those animations is that they're pretty funny. If you, if you watch the video without the animations, it's not actually that funny. The, the professor's narration um, is kind of very, very straightforward. But the animations really kind of really added the humor to the whole thing that uh, really gives it an extra, an extra spark. Um, and I think possibly uh, just as important as the animations is the fact that this video, it tells a little bit of a story. So it starts out with uh, the professor saying, I know how to get a free suit. Uh, and in the, you kind of think, what does that mean? He kind of hooks the viewer in at the very beginning. And then he goes on to tell a little bit of a story about uh, a fictional character that uh, the animators uh, animated as uh, Professor Scoble going through and trying to steal suits and not getting away with it. Um, so I think that, that kind of narrative element um, also makes it easier to find your way through the educational message about how how markets, uh, rather than being a, competitive, a purely competitive environment, actually help people work together uh, more easily. Um, so I want to show you another example of a video that hasn't worked out so well. Um, this is a, a recent video that we did um, and it launched probably a couple months ago. At first glance, Norman's culture is a bit of a puzzle. How is it that this city can possibly afford to spend so much time, resources, and energy on partying, drinking, eating good food, and listening to good music? But what if I told you that it was precisely this carefree culture that made all the difference to successfully recover in the wake of Hurricane Katrina? We are here in Uptown New Orleans at the Maple Leaf Bar with the man, the myth, the legend, Phil Fraser of Rebirth Brass Band. I, I can't help but think how difficult it must have been to endure something like, like Hurricane Katrina. How did that work? Well, first of all, we're a traveling band. We've been around for 31 years. We already get ready to hit the road when Katrina had stopped. It took about two days to get back on the road. It took about two days to get back on the road. That's, that's really remarkable. Did you ever stop and think, like, maybe you guys could just switch to another city? Nah, man. Switch to another city will work for Rebirth. Rebirth, a New Orleans band, period. So I started back in fourth grade playing trombone, a sort of and from. So that's about the first minute of the video. 
Um, and this was part of a series that we were actually really excited about because we got uh, kind of a hip young economist who you know, is being, being a little edgier than your, your typical professor, even more so than uh, Professor Scoble from the previous video. Uh, and we were trying a new format. It was documentary style where you kind of got a man on the street. Um, but unfortunately, this video uh, only got a little bit less than 5,000 views, which for us is not, uh, not very good. Um, and I think you'll probably immediately see some of the reasons why. I think um, the production quality wasn't quite as good. And I think more importantly, we, we didn't really do a good job of capturing the visual space as well as we have uh, in some of our other videos. Um, we still we want to pursue this kind of documentary style a little bit more and see if we can get better at it. Um, but uh, I think you know this highlights some of the challenges that we've faced more recently with uh, venturing outside of a format that's um, more more analytical and kind of a, a straightforward uh, ideas oriented narrative like you saw in the previous video. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about how the videos are made. Um, kind of like uh, Amity and Paul, uh, the, the videos are really a collaboration between the professor and the, the video producers. Um, our, our faculty really bring the ideas content and the, the, the intellectual message that we want to get across educationally. And then we rely a lot on video producers, uh, not people on our staff, but uh, professionals out there working in video to really bring that message to life uh, in the video format. So uh, like, like Paul was saying, every video is a collaboration between those, uh, those, those two people. Um, and I also do want to highlight uh, some of my staff who are in the audience, particularly Liz McCaffrey. Stand up, Liz. Liz was actually the producer who uh, has made, uh, on our staff, most of the videos. Uh, in, including the, uh, the, the social cooperation video I just showed earlier. Uh, so moving forward, one thing we're really focusing on is uh, how, do we, how do we pick topics that are really going to appeal to young people? How do we um, not just talk about issues that we care about but not other people care about, but how do we link what we the message we want to get across with something that people are likely to care about? Uh, so also from some survey research we've done, uh, we found that... Um, Young people are, have definite preferences for issues they're interested in. Uh, economy and jobs kind of dominates their uh, sense of what issues they think politicians should focus on. Um, followed uh, in, in a distant second by government spending and debt, uh, college tuition, health care, et cetera. Um, but what's interesting is uh, even, if young, even if these are the issues that young people think that politicians should focus on, they're not even the top concerns for young people. Um, young people are far more concerned with things like uh, their own finances, their own career, um, what they're doing in school. Uh, so, some of our follow-up research suggests that, that young people have a very short time horizon. They're thinking two weeks, two months, two years ahead, not necessarily uh, what's going to make the economy better in 10 years. So that's the kind of challenge that we're trying to face uh, moving forward is how can we strategically pick topics and use the topics that will relate to people and then use the video format uh, to effectively address those kind of topics. Cool. Thanks, Scott. Um, so we'll leave this up. I'll show a couple of stories that they have up there. But uh, I'm kind of left with like a big um, macro picture, right? Like we've heard about Learn Liberty. We've heard about turning you know, works into graphic novels. They're linked together by this idea of using graphics and communicating ideas. So why do you think a proj projects like these are important? Are they important? And if so, why do you think they are? 
Amber, do you want to lead off or Paul? No, Paul. Well, I would say, <clears throat> just if we watch our kids, where are the kids? They're where the screens are. Everybody's on their screens. I mean, um, so as I said to Chip earlier, maybe it's Steve Jobs' fault with the iPhone. Um, but, you know, really, that's, that's where people seem to be. So, um, now, a graphic novel's not a screen, but it deals in imagery, um, and it's, it's visual content. So I think that's probably one answer. I know, Amina, you had mentioned that one of the reasons that we need to be in this space is that other people are occupying it, um, right? Other people are using the medium. Do you view that as a reason that pushed you to pursue this? Well, uh, I don't know. Is the audience familiar with Howard Zinn's uh, visual history of empire? Well, Howard Zinn is a progressive historian. Um, I think he's no longer with us, but he's very influential, and he also did a graphic version which I've seen around quite a bit for, for years now, of, um, of empire, of foreign policy. And, uh, you know, when Paul and I and Chuck totted it up, we found that there were, I don't know, at least one Emma Goldman graphic novel and three Che Guevara graphic novels. And, um, and uh, you know, just what you can imagine. Uh, so it seemed uh, that, that a lot of uh, content, including political and historical content, was being conveyed through pictures, so we thought we'd have a go. Mm -hmm. it, it, this takes me uh, us back to the arrogant theme. If, if we want everyone to learn economics like a graduate student, we're not going to reach most people, right? So we might know economics, hopefully, like a graduate student, but, but we have to relax a bit. Uh, I would push back a bit to what Scott said. I don't think professors alone can convey this material because they want to get tenure. So w when they're trying to get tenure, they're trying to please someone who likes complexity usually and is safe. And this all takes incredible risk and humor. And sometimes professors, unfortunately, because of the nature of the guild of the academy, do not get rewarded for doing weird things and taking strange risks, right? Especially at that key period in their life, you know, when they're trying to get tenure, which is not a free market concept, by the way, tenure, right? <laughs> so... So, so I would encourage uh, everyone to include non-professors um, as educators in all these projects along with professors uh, because even if they aren't always trustworthy, sometimes they're better artists. Thanks. You know, yeah. I, I would add... I'm sorry, um, I'm teasing you, Scott, here. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I recall being a boy in the 60s and reading all kinds of comic books and, you know, books, comic books, and it comes down to what ideas are circulating in the culture. So in the 60s, it wasn't that long after, this is just one example that comes to my mind, after the World War II era, people had come back from fighting this terrible war. In the culture, even in the comic books I read as a boy, there was much more of these principles beneath the surface motivating the storylines compared to what I see now. That was one of the reasons Chuck and I wrote that op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. So, you know, I think that's kind of keying in with what Amity's saying. Not everything has to be an exact um, economics lesson, although there's nothing at all wrong with that, of course. But you can also have a book like this, which is a mixture. It's going where people are reading, which is they are reading graphic novels. Um, and it's a mixture. It's got some entertainment, but embedded within it are important ideas, like the ideas of, you know, what happens when you have big government programs and intervention. Does that really work or not? That's why Amity's original book hit such a nerve, because uh, it was relevant. So, and people love comics, so, so, you know, it's kind of a guilty pleasure still. So we're trying to give people permission to keep loving them. Yeah, so um, I, think, I think it's true that, you know, professors 
are at an interesting disadvantage here. Um, we, the psychology literature suggests that most people are empathizers. They like to they feel and identify with characters and stories rather than analytical thinkers who think in who think in systems. And I think most uh, a lot of professors tend to uh, think in that way, and I think a lot of libertarians too uh, tend to think is in terms of systems and analysis. Um, I think that's how I got there, and that's how most people. Uh, I, I wager that's how a lot of people in this room uh, got to where they are, and so I think it's a challenge for. Um, people who identify with our perspective um, to be able to reach outside that mental model and uh, and, and tell tell interesting stories that can that can tug at the heartstrings because I don't think it comes naturally to to a lot of people. Right, right. Especially if you've always been rewarded for your wonderful math scores, right? Because you know, or whatever, if one has those, right? Uh, so, so it's it's hard to make a fool of yourself. Which I, I want to add one thing. Um, you know, with a topic like uh, the depression or even economics now, um, we're being a little brave because the general consensus is that maybe collectivism or some kind of cooperation is better always, which is uh, it's a bit worse than it was ten or fifteen years ago. I, I think. Um, the, the general culture uh, and its willingness to concede that markets might be the answer, at least some of the time, that that's weaker than it was maybe uh, 10 years ago. But one thing that is to our advantage is rebellion, because uh, with the culture conveying in school basically a collective me- message, well, kids are, are natural skeptics, and they get tired of hearing teacher talk, right? Saying always what teachers say now, which is, uh, I don't know, the New Deal was good, or uh, maybe uh, government health care is good, and so on. The kids rebel against that. Kids are natural rebels. And uh, when you make a work like this, it's an act of rebellion, and there's a lot of fun and energy in that. And so I would encourage, I know there are artists in this room, and I hope you will talk, people who have tried projects, to, to also tell us about your projects, because you will produce something great because you're excited and maybe you're a little bit angry. These works are, are radical, you know, they're, whether they're those cartoons, which are hilarious and incredibly influential, or something like this, they are, um, right, an act of rebellion, uh, and that gives them energy. Uh, so I know that some of you in the room can do that too, or have already done it. Cool. So you're, you're, you're starting to address the people in the audience. So I, I kind of am going to split the audience in half, and I'm going to say half are the people that want to start these projects and do this stuff, and the other half are the people that could fund these projects. <laughs> I don't know if it's true. If it is, then like talk to me afterwards. Um, but if you had to give some advice to like both sides, either to the people that are like, I don't know if I have the skills, I don't know if I can take the risk, like what advice would you give on taking a chance? And on the other, how would you talk to potential donors about the need to, to really balance you know, the desire to get the most bang for your buck and actually paying somebody that's not going to produce a, a bad product? And how would you pitch it to those people who are going to fund the projects of the other half of the audience? Uh, sure. Um, I guess first specifically to people, I guess for uh, both sides looking into this area, uh, I think one thing I would advise is that not every creative work is going to be successful. And I think uh, we have, you know, we've had some successes and some failures. And uh, looking back on it, I'm not sure we have a great track record of understanding in advance what's going to work and what's not. 
Um, I think one thing we really benefited from is having a portfolio approach where we're, we're pursuing a lot of different projects all at once. And we know that some of those projects are going to do really well. Others are going to be total failures. And we have to be okay with that. And I think anyone who's starting off pursuing a creative project, chances are you're going to, the first one you do is going to be a flop. Uh, I know the first time we get into a new style of video, like, like the one I just showed you, chances are it's going to be something pretty terrible. And same thing on the, on the funding side. If you're, if you're an organization that, who's undertaking a creative project or funding one, um, chances are you're going to have to have a lot, of, uh, a lot of bad projects before you get to some good ones. And that's part of the learning process of really figuring out uh, what works and what doesn't and what kind of capabilities you can uh, bring to the table. Yeah, no, I, I would say um, even in the course of this project, we there's sort of a model. We had to experiment, and we had to start small at the beginning, and then it kind of grew. Um, so I think those kind of things are important, that uh, if you're going to be setting up your own project, start small. You don't have to necessarily do a super long book. Um, it's good advice for any kind of artistic endeavor. Um, my daughter draws comics, and so I always tell her, you know, you don't have to do like a 100-page epic graphic novel and get it published. You can just do short stories, which is indeed what she's been doing, one- or two-page comics. So you have the gratification of, of conclusion, of publication in whatever form, whether it's a book, whether it's online. Um, and I guess the third point I would say is it's like the classic adage about writing is write what you know, draw what you know and believe in. So for me, this was a natural. I love history. I guess uh, Chuck Dixon, when he recommended me to be the artist, he knew that I had drawn this comic, Mr. X, which was mentioned, which has a kind of Art Deco, Depression-era thematics to it. Uh, so as a natural there, and also the kind of ideology or the message behind this book, I, I believe in and agreed with. So it wasn't like a resistance, like Amity mentioned, looking for other artists. There was no slippage. There was no pulling back or balking, and no, do I really have to draw that? Um, so I think for people setting up their projects, it's like that classic advice. You really have to, to, to get through something, especially when it does get longer. You have to believe in it or else you're just not going to get through to the end. Well, I think it's all said. You okay, can ask cool. Them. So I want to jump back and let you guys work through one of your sketches. Let's, let's tell me when to stop on the chicken one. Okay, we'll um, okay. how about... This does start here? Yeah, that, that's all right. fine. Right. So if you can walk us through kind of... A frame. If if you guys pick up the book, there's something like 1,800 individual sketches in here. Paul, how long did this take? Well, we're saying about four years. It depends on when you demarcate the beginning of it, but yeah. How long does it take you to draw one frame? It really depends, but um, you know, when you're really up to speed, you could probably do a page in a day or two. But you know, it really depends on on the specifics. They varied widely. Some took a lot of research. Some were duds and didn't work. We had to scrap them. Either Amity scrapped them or Paul scrapped them and said, being a little bit perfectionist, you'd go, you know, that just doesn't feel right when you look at it the next day. Every artist or writer knows this phenomenon. You know, the secret of writing is rewriting. So the secret of drawing is redrawing. So they really varied. Uh, and some, when you get in that kind of good groove, things would just roll off and, and you could hit it really fast. But other times they took several days. So, so the book, you guys organize it because a comic has to have each individual page kind of has to be a story, but then it plays in the big role. So we pulled up, up one here. If you guys could talk through this little section, and then we'll open up for audience to ask some questions. Well, um, I think if I would redo this book, I would have 1,800 pages. 
because I would cut out each panel, so there are 300, pa there are 300 pages with six images each, and give each a page. Because the drawings, I, uh, one of the things that you know, we experienced on this learning curve is the drawings are so good, they need time to be absorbed. So what you're seeing here is one-sixth of a page, the beginning of a story. This is the story of a famous story about how uh, the New Deal was brought to its knees um, uh, in an unlikely court case called Schechter. The Schechters were little chicken butchers who were aggressed by a big regulator, the National Recovery Administration. And the beginning of that aggression by the regulator was an official came to their door, like just as the IRS might come to your door, or you know that cold moment when you feel the the little bit of concern after the doorbell rings or the cold finger of here. And um, I, one of us, this is a health inspector. The chicken case involved health of animals. And one of the jokes that we made was that we made the health inspector sick. You can see that, right? Yeah. That's not very good, right? Instead of preventing disease, he's bringing it. And this actually happened. That was our added, we don't know whether Mr. Lampy, that was his name, he really existed, was sick. And then he came in, and you can see his eyes have, uh, you can't see his eyes, right? You can't see the pupils because we wanted to make him as scary as an inspector would be, as the IRS is when it rings your bell. And these are the Schecters, and they're looking, um, right? So that we're trying to convey that. And I think the next page, um, oh, we don't have it. But this is, this is the moment when the regulator tells you it's going to be okay, and you just know it's not going to be okay, right? That very familiar moment um, uh, when you're um, when you're a little bit afraid because the investigator keeps investigating, um, and that is actually a line from the court testimony that we retrieved or I retrieved from uh, you know from the law library of New York University about the Schechter case. So I'm just using the wonderful materials the Schechters themselves supplied when they testified in this case where the government was after them like hotsy-totsy, right? Um, and this, uh, well, this just gives you a feeling when, when uh, this, this is meant to capture the arbitrariness of regulation. The, the regulator isn't saying the rule here says and therefore you must follow it. He, he says later the, the rulers will make that decision and you, you, you don't have much say in it, right? That's for the code to decide. It's almost uh, bad English, right? What do you mean? The code makes the decision, but this is our endeavor to capture how it is. Well, today, FERC, some of you have written about, right? Or the SEC, the, 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 how can an agency decide, but it does? And the, you know, or how can an amorphous text, Dodd-Frank, decide? Or, you know, right? And so we were trying to capture that through their dialogue. And through their body language, right? Too, it, like. Oh, sorry, go on. Sorry, I didn't mean no, to. Go on, go on. Um, just in staging, too. I mean, this is going to be Paul getting into some of the comics lore, but, you know, my problem is to dramatize it. So here we've got the cold, eyeless face of bureaucracy turning its back on the average customer. So really, th those are the kind of terms I would think of as, think in uh, as the comic artist the whole way through. It's uh, what you do in acting, too, in films, staging, setting up the positions of the characters, not only the poses, but their body movements and placements in the in the page. So, not to interrupt Amby, I just thought that might be interesting. That's part of the challenge to kind of bring it to life. 
Right. You see, Paul, one of the subtexts of this story is ethnicity. The regulators were Anglos and the targets were ethnics. Sort of, a, a, you know, another Al Capone story. It made me think again about Al Capone, I'll tell you, in Prohibition. Um, and the, the regulators who went to Harvard Law School took advantage of their targets, little ethnics who barely spoke English, and their lawyer, uh, their original lawyer, Joe Heller, only went to Brooklyn Law School. He, he didn't have a fine accent. And this is actually a, a genuine intimidation scene from the courtroom, you know, uh, where they said, we know about economics, that arrogance of power that, that Hayek spoke of. We're in the Hayek room, right? Um, and you don't, you little businessman. And so Paul drew it so beautifully, right? The little businessman is intimidated, but he's actually correct. It's the big, arrogant regulator who is wrong. So. And I, I just wanted to add one little thing for uh, pertaining to, you know, aspiring project makers and artists. Um, that what strikes me again looking at this is what Amity did in her books and what we further did here. Amity's citing the actual testimony that we used in cartooning. I think that that's like an intriguing um, entryway for people to go digging. You know, what Amity's done in her books and in lots of authors that I've read that bother to go that extra mile, uh, they'll go to the actual source material, the forgotten, just reams of archives, books that people, nobody, nobody remembers. You know, they'll be in the flea market uh, in the rain, just forgotten. So somebody has to go and read these books. But if you do that kind of mining, there's all kinds of material. It's very similar to, as a cartoonist, what you find is that a lot of comic artists get their style from copying other artists because they're inspired by them. But what I often say to people, and I was saying the other day to my daughter, who's, a, I mentioned, a budding cartoonist, I said, well, that's great. You can look at other cartoonists, but you should go to the source material. You can sit on a street for half an hour, and you can watch people go by, and you'll get a hundred, a thousand ideas for great faces, personalities, things they do, material, you know, shtick. Um, so I, that, that's a little tip for people. I think that there's so much that could be done with that, looking into the archives of American history, forgotten events, and a lot of it's relevant today because we know that history repeats itself just with variations. Nothing repeats exactly, but we can see today things are repeating again and building in a way that's, you know, eerily reminiscent of earlier times. Um, so anyway, that's that's a, a hint that's occurred to me. I think that that people could really dig up something interesting. All right, we're going to open this up uh, for some Q and A. So when you guys uh, raise your hand, when you ca uh, call on you, and then someone will bring a mic to you. When you get the mic, um, just tell us your name, your affiliation, uh, and then ask the question and hand the mic right back to our lovely helpers here. So uh, I saw that first hand in the back. Sir, next to, yes. Mr. Smith. Oh, Mr. Smith. Uh, Fred Smith, CEI. Um, this is a passion for mine, so I'm really pleased y'all are into this kind of thing, because it doesn't matter how many sex manuals we write, unless we get them in the hands of people, we're never going to have children. So, um, <laughs> McCloskey, as uh, Nita McCloskey, you know, has made this a passion. Narratives are everything. The stories we tell, the rhetoric we use to tell it in, but one of the challenges I think all of us face is, how do we know on the other side? We know we're pleased sometime, or we're pleased with iPencil, we did, but is it working on the other side? That's what marketing research is for, and marketing research costs a fortune. Um, business does it, but only to sell soap. They don't use it to sell ideas with. To what extent can we find ways, or do we need to find ways, to see whether what we're saying is what's being heard is being heard effectively? I mean, when, well, 
you have the data numbers yeah sure so uh, one of the one of the strategies of our project has been to release uh, one video every week so that we get a little bit more data as we go um, and see how each of those videos is resonating and so the things that we, the things that we really look at um, one we look at uh, are people watching the video you know simply the the, vid the view count on YouTube and the, that actually that varies widely based on the content of the video even though we're uh, releasing it and marketing it in the same way. Uh, second of all, we look at the shares. You know, are people uh, on platforms like Facebook and YouTube and Twitter, are they sharing that video with other people? I think that's one of the clearest indications that, you know, there was something grabbed their attention about that video. Um, and so th I, I think these, these metrics get at some indication of whether people like the video and found it interesting. It doesn't quite get at education, which you mentioned, Fred, um, we've done a little bit of focus grouping on that topic to understand, like, are people actually learning something from the, uh, from the video? But that's really the hardest thing that we've found to really get our hands on. Well, I, I'd hazard a guess and say, you know, again, comic books, you know, the forgotten medium... Um, for this kind of material. Uh, I think that, you know, young people, they're forming their ideas about the world, young people of whatever age. Um, they're going to come across things in books like this that they've never heard of. And our hope was, I love history, uh, our hope was that it would pique their interest, that they would be encouraged to uh, look into this more. Because, of course, we couldn't cover everything about any of these given topics in any great depth, even at 294 pages. But I would hope that uh, between the different components of the book, there's a cast of characters, there's a timeline, there's the book itself, that that, that would stimulate people to really um, look into it. Because I think you're right, that it's there's a risk of preaching to the converted already. Uh, but younger people will, will read this kind of material. As I was saying to somebody, too, it's it's a natural for sharing, as Scott mentioned, on Facebook or or different social media platforms. Because once you create a project like this, you've got a, you know, a data bank of all kinds of imagery that can be retasked for various purposes. All right, we'll swing it over here into the aisle. Ben Anderson, Anderson Strategies. Um, this kind of takes me back to the 70s, 60s and 70s, and conjunction, junction, what's your function, schoolhouse rock. Um, Hold it a little closer. Thank you yeah. very much. Um, <clears throat> wondering what your age range is, your target age range. I mean, those, those, those videos or, or films or animations were basically aimed toward the really, really young generation. Are you aiming toward junior highs, high schools, beyond that? Because a lot of the curriculum today is actually going against the grain, and it's, it's reaching down in the first, second, and third grades. Well, I'll start to try to answer that. What age group, well, there is a, um, what age group are we going to? I think um, in the U.S. there's an idea that cartoons are for kids. And if you're smart, in fourth grade, you move over to books, right? About. In Europe, they don't have that idea. And in Asia, they don't, right? Correct. You stay with pictures your whole life, just you might stay with movies your whole life, right? Remember, in the past, we used to say, you know, smart people read books, they didn't watch movies. Well, that's changed. Smart people read books, they didn't watch TV. That changed in the 70s, right? I don't know. 
So I do think uh, there are two obstacles here. One obstacle is uh, that people aren't familiar with some of these ideas. The other is that U.S. grown-ups don't think that it's appropriate for, they, for them to read cartoons because that would show they were silly or weak or childish. Um, so we're both, we're tr we're, this book attempts to change the market, but we're, we're not the first. Um, Mouse was actually the first, right? Very European-y. And, uh, Mr. Spiegelman, the artist, his wife is French, and in France they do have the Tintin culture. You know, grown-ups too look at pictures, certainly in Belgium. Uh, so we have two obstacles. Uh, one, uh, one is we kind of have to stretch uh, the minds of adults, and I am personally targeting adults, up, children up to the age of 60, right? Um, uh, and see if we can coax them to think differently. And then the second obstacle is to convey ideas they might not have been familiar with before, um, right? Sure. No, Amity's quite correct. I mean, in, in France, Belgium, um, I have some of that heritage, ter heritage too. And you know, seeing the way that they interact with comics, uh, it's markedly different. And I guess it's the genesis of how it you know came to be in North America. Um, Comics came, I think, out of pulp magazines and cheaply printed periodicals on newsstands. So it became associated with the kind of throwaway culture, quick stuff for kids. Um, and then became, there was another thing that happened in North America, which is that comics became, uh, after a certain point, they, they narrowed down to almost one genre, with, with some exceptions. But comics are usually identified with people as being superheroes in North America. And that's really a confusion because... Comics are just a medium where they, you marry, it's a hybrid between words and pictures. So you can do infinite numbers of things with comics. And again, Amity has stated quite rightly that people like Art Spiegelman with Mouse and Europeans, the Japanese, all sorts of Asian cultures, they have just a cornucopia of different uh, things they do with comics. They are not, there's, and there's no stigma. You'll see people commuting, reading, reading comics of all kinds. And that has been changing somewhat with graphic novels here, although I don't know how many kind of uh, quote-unquote adult, you know, serious literary type graphic novels are really coming out. There are some, uh, but it could, it could go a lot further. I mean, it's an unlimited medium, really, is, is the message I would say. Got that gentleman with the blue shirt here. Hi, Jordan Schneider from the Razor Group with my screen. From the where? Eurasia Group, political risk. Um, so, just had a question. Wonder if you. Thanks so much. First of all, and wonder if you guys could square a circle for me. Um, the in the beginning, I was really struck by when you started talking about FDR and how you kind of wanted to give him this nuanced portrayal, and um, you know, made, made sure to put his eyes in. Um, and then we kind of got to the end of the talk, and then you said, you know, I really wanted to make the inspector as scary as possible and decided not to show the inspector's eyes. Um, so I guess the kind of tension we have here is, is to what, uh, you know, at what times did you guys decide to, like, throw extra nuance in, and then when were you more comfortable kind of just going towards archetypes, and um, how, how do you kind of... Bridge the, uh, the yeah, there. that's so a good question. I, I'm sure Amity would have more detail on this too, but um, I guess the it's major and minor figures. Like Roosevelt is a major figure historically. He's a major figure in the book. Uh, by positioning of needing some conflict, which was really there, every, every drama needs conflict to be interesting to an audience. And it was really there, of course, in real life, politically, it always is. Um, so he was a major figure, but we just discovered, as Amity had said, 
that you know if you go a little too far not showing him uh, as a real person it kind of demonized him a little bit too much so that's because he was a major figure and he couldn't really be treated that way whereas uh, Lampy the inspector who was a real person uh, in the narrative he's just a secondary character I mean he's he's there very briefly and like I said earlier I think that he's like a symbol of government overwhelming government bureaucracy faceless that doesn't listen and you know it's, so it's valid to not show his eyes. Plus, it was a rainy day, so his glasses were coated with water, so you couldn't see his eyes anyway. That's what I'm, I'm sticking to that. So. All right, let's go the the woman up there in the orange shirt. Well, the lady next to you. Together. <laughs> okay, they can go. You can go next. Oh. <laughs> Thanks. Hi, I'm Kelsey. I'm with AFP. And um, I guess this question is mostly directed to Barton. Um, I'm interested in the videos because we do something similar at AFP. Um, how do you address the risk of belittling or condescending um, to your audience when the issue is simplified and explained in cartoon form? And um, what ha feedback have you gotten um, from focus groups um, regarding this risk? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I think we haven't gotten too much feedback about uh, condescending to our audience. I think you know we've tried to make our videos accessible um, while at the still while at the same time maintaining the the integrity of the of the message. And we've really relied on the professors to uh, keep that balance for us. And so generally, uh, I think for some of the reasons Amity mentions, you know, professors want to maintain their image of a, a scholar, and so generally they've been a good check to for us to say, you know, I, if we're pushing too far to make the message accessible, they'll push back and say uh, I, that's going a little too far. It's oversimplifying too much. So they've really been the main check on us to uh, avoid uh, pandering to the audience. You guys, want to add anything to that? Repeat the question again. Condescending. How, oh, condescending, the belittling, right, thank you. Um, I think that, um, again, it's, it's like what you had said earlier, Chip, about the line between uh, entertainment and information. I mean, I think that if you have some, if the audience is going to have to have some suspension of disbelief, that's, you know, a term from storytelling, uh, they're going to have to go along with you and know, like in our case, okay, this is a cartoon retelling of these very serious events. Um, but And so that's a, a different world. It's like I'm making cardboard cutouts of all these characters. I knew that when I drew them, I could never actually literally draw Wendell Wilkie. So I had a sort of... It's like if you hire an actor in a movie who looks close to the guy, but he's not... So that's what I did in the book, and I decided that's the way I had to do it. But within that world that was created, treat it rigorously, which is what we did. We tried to, as I said earlier, uh, make the places authentic, and the, the economics behind it, Amity treated seriously. She referenced everything. We were, when we were on the phone, you know, dialoguing pages, and she's researching if somebody said something or not, and we would throw it out if it wasn't authentic. But in between that, there was some invention, obviously, because we weren't in every room at every time. So I think that if you approach the audience that way in the product, they can see that it's serious, and so that, you know, it's not belittling. We didn't do a slapdash kind of thing where we just made up stuff out of whole cloth because the cloth would fray into a million pieces at some point if you just start making up stuff. Cool. I'll go yellow. return to that line back there with the yellow shirt this time. 
Uh, my name is Claudia Farris. I'm a PhD candidate at George Mason University School of Public Policy. Um, I have a question about the limits of the delivery system. Um, in education, for example, there are skill sets that are conveyed via drill and practice, and and and, um, uh, and that underlies the ability to think and develop ideas. I hear you with regard to its ability to convey ideas. However, there are analytics behind many of these ideas, certainly in, in um, economics. Um, the whole undergirding of economic theory is the analytics, and, and it's possible to ignore that in your delivery system. Um, so I would like to hear you talk about um, the limits of your, of your delivery system, please. Uh, sure, I'll talk about it from the the point of view of video. Um, I think I think you're right. There there are two big limits that I think we face. One is um, how much of that that intellectual heft we're able to communicate in the visual medium. If someone really wants to dig deeper into some of the analysis and concepts, you might not need as much of the the visual element. And so uh, one one thing we try to do with our videos is make sure those interested people know about opportunities they can do outside the video. Um, that actually gets back to Fred's question earlier. Um, I think it, we, we feel it's a success, regardless of whether we can measure the education, if we know if someone's inspired to, to take another step, to learn something else online by visiting um, some other website or by uh, you know, applying and attending uh, another event. Um, so I think that's one, that's one limitation. And then the other limitation is, is cost. Um, the, a visual medium takes a, a lot more time to implement than something that's not visual, and I'm sure Paul's very aware of that. Uh, so doing something that's a lot more in-depth, uh, you're going to run up on limitations of time and cost of what you're able to accomplish in something highly visual. So, I'll give them the last minute. We'll go uh, to the back up there with Mr. Igor with the blue shirt. Okay, <clears throat> I'm Igor Gambitsky. I work with, uh, with Scott on the Learn Liberty Project. And this question is for Yamini and Paul. Uh, 1,800 pictures, that's uh, really epic. This, uh, four years uh, to, to create this, uh, this, this masterpiece. Now, how you mentioned earlier uh, that testing is really important, right? That you have to kind of start small and, and, and fail fast. I know in the video space, we, we do that all the time. We, we, as Scott mentioned, you know, release a lot of things and we kind of get a lot of feedback. Um, how, uh, what kind of feedback did you get, you know, in, in jumping into executing on 1,800 pictures? And is there, are there other ways in which you're kind of uh, getting this material out other than just uh, through the book? Do we, so the question is, do we need 1,800? Is the investment worth it? Is that the question? Oh. Well, um, that it's a very it's a very important question, and now we're thinking of doing several books. Um, you know, in a, in a series, uh, maybe those books would be shorter. So we'd be we we'd be copying Scott. We'd make a lot of books. Shorter books or stories like Paul's Daughter Charlotte. Um, that's one way to do it, um, right? 
to to uh, to have your experiment be less weighty because you have more than one more than one try instead of just one big try. Um, but uh, I, I mean, how you measure whether it's worth it? Um, well, one thing is sales, so we're very gratified about the sales. But of course, it's a big experiment. It's a big investment. I mean, this book was uh, in gestation longer than an elephant, right? <laughs> so <laughs> that's a long time. I don't know, you know, uh, I, I mean, I think if I were doing this scientifically, I'd have more essays, uh, more tries, of course. But, but you know, l life yeah. isn't always a lab. And I would say m um, my comment about starting small was probably like new original projects. In this case, it was an adaptation of Amity's book. So we had that kind of as a template. It was already a, a success in the marketplace. And it was like a touchstone. We were adapting it into a new medium so we could always go back to it. So that justified the risk because we knew the original book obviously is a great bestseller. Um, we had to go a little bit on faith that people would get what we were doing. So there is the risk element there for four years. But so there, there is a bit of maybe of a different process. And that would probably be the case for every project. You have to find a, you know, a, a sort of a pathway through it. Um, but even at that, when I mentioned experimenting, in the early days when I was doing pages, I did a lot of work that was thrown out in the earliest parts of it, or I would send Amity things, different uh, drawings, and they'd say, oh, that doesn't feel right. But then it slowly started taking shape. So that's the experimental process. Um, I would just say, I, uh, I think Chip mentioned people are considering investing in projects like this. That, of course, the uh, experimental model is really good, and I like that attitude. Um, I'm going to try a lot, and some of it will stick, right? And some won't. Um, it, but uh, maybe as I've been receiving some wonderful, wonderful emails from pe people who are interested in these projects, and they've made clear to me um, what I also have come to think through this experiment. Adaptation is hard and maybe overrated. It might be better to do original projects. I think where this book is flawed, and I can name 10 places at least, it's because of our decisions about whether to adapt and how to adapt. We probably should have just done an original book, but um, you know, we were trying da-da-da. Um, that's one. Two, the investment takes more than you think. So if you go back and look at the Road to Serfdom cartoon that was drawn off Hayek's original work, so important, it was pretty good, but the investment was insufficient. It was just something somebody drew off in a week on the, you know, in the storyboard at a New York advertising agency as a favor yeah, think, to yeah. look, General Electric. It was like Look Magazine it or was something? Like, um, it, those, yeah. Right. These investments are significant. Um, okay. That's worth it. Um, and the other thing I would say is put animals in your stories and weapons that shoot and big men. <laughs> you know, you just think about the part of the brain to which you're appealing. That's what's interesting about this. It appeals not only to the analytic, but also to all other parts of the brain, the emotion part, right? And, and that's what's fun about it in the same way that classical music might, right? Which part of the brain is listening to the music when? Um, and uh, it, humans love to... Uh, feel different parts of their brains working and that will make them give the attention to your important subject when both their emotions and their analytics are, are engaged, maybe seriatim. So, so it, it's a big investment, but it gets to people. Gateway drug to content keeps coming back to me way more, um, I think, than, than print. Uh, and I, I'm just uh, crazy about it. Uh, I'm, I've become myself uh, addicted to this medium, which is kind of improbable, but there you are.
right, we've got time for one or two more. So we'll go back to the gentleman here on the aisle with the white shirt, please. Um, hi, Ed Bartholomew, unaffiliated. Um, I'm looking at the page that you have up on the, on the screen now, and I'm wondering, is, is, is there something that those particular pictures need to be on a single page? And, and what you said earlier about wanting to make it like 1,800 pages, had you, is there a tablet version? I mean, I'm just thinking of how well, people- you know, we, this is, um, I mean, you're thinking about the challenges, right? Okay, HarperCollins is an awesome publisher. They published this book. They weren't sure about it, right? But they published it kind of as, you know, indulgence to author, right? Um, they did a really good job, but they didn't feel like public making it cost $30. They wanted it to cost under 20. They're logical. This is a market. Uh, you know, I, I think looking at it now, and Paul and I have said this all along, the delivery would be, it would be a better book if each of his gorgeous images had more space, even an eighth of an inch more than they have. But, but so, you know, we have the constraints of the marketplace. I have found that the uh, demand is incredibly elastic for uh, products such as mine. When when my book is put down for two ninety nine in the Kindle version, it sells a lot. I wish I were inelastic. I'm not right. So um, so that's the problem. And they they there is software for c converting this stuff, and you may know about it um, pretty quickly to uh, a tablet type version. The issue is that the writing has to, you can tell this. You tell us the writing has to be legible. Uh, Right, and yeah. you can do it. Yeah, it, it flows very easily. I begged Harper Collins to do that. They haven't seen the, uh, my way on that yet. I mean, it, it, there, there, there's so many battles you can fight, but I do think uh, I agree with you. It should be page after page, and we may yet be able to get it if Harper Collins thinks that's right uh, to have one image per page. It's all waiting there to be done. I mean, the e-comics, the e-comics market, as I'm sure a lot of you know, it's already expanding. Um, Amazon.com bought this company, Comixology. Um, there's all kinds of things happening. So we even in adapting the slides, we, I realized again exactly the idea that as single images, it flows quite well. There might have to be some images that were drawn like horizontal or vertical that would have to be reworked a little bit, but that could be easily done. Um, so, yeah, as Amity says, we, we hope that will happen. And even with new projects, we'll be considering that usage for them. There was a cartoon book um, by France Mazarel. What's it called? You know, the one that inspired. It's all etchings, just one picture a page of a man, you know, going through his life and, you know, despairing, very uh, existentialist and Frenchy. And I, I kind of actually like that, and I prefer one image per page. Anyway. We'll take that gentleman against Sorry. the wall back there. Hi, I'm Neil Chilson. Uh, I'm an attorney advisor for Commissioner Olhausen at the Federal Trade Commission, but I'm definitely here in my individual capacity. <laughs> um, uh, real quick, any of you who are thinking about investing in a project like this, I, I could not recommend highly enough reading Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics. Mm -hmm. I will show you the power of this medium to convey very complicated ideas, and I think it's well suited to even uh, ideas as complicated or as simple as ec economics. Um, but real quick, a question. Uh, you know, the the U.S. comic industry has a really interesting history. Uh, it is uh, it has a flourishing counterculture. It did, especially in the 60s, 70s. It also has uh, 
a lot of experience with self-censorship under the threat of uh, government action uh, in the 50s. And so given that kind of history, I'm curious, why hasn't uh, why aren't there more comic artists doing work for individual liberty that talk about individual liberty in the U.S.? That's a, that's a real stumper. I mean, I, ca- I can address Canada. Um, I, I think that, that the root idea of that is not... I mean, in Canada, we, we have a different his- literal history of how our country emerged, so uh, it, we're not as rooted in that tradition. But just, I, I think that the, you know, artists grow up in a certain time and place, and if they're not exposed to these ideas, and they would be even less so exposed in Canada, they, they just don't take on a life of their own. As I said earlier, for me, somehow through the books I read, my parents, my father was... Uh, was in the war and had been chased by the Gestapo at one point in his life. Uh, a family member was murdered by the communists. You know, these kind of things shaped me as a boy when I read them or, and heard about them. Uh, I misspoke. When I heard about them from my family, they powerfully impressed me. And then when I read different materials that were f- circulating in the culture, I said to somebody earlier today, it could be as seemingly innocuous or as disposable as a Dell comic, a Dell war comic in the 1960s. I read it was about the Battle of Iwo Jima in the Pacific campaign. So you read these things, and beneath it is this conviction. Like somebody bothered to put out this comic. They they were trying to communicate something to somebody. Sometimes they were even written and drawn by veterans. Um, and so that impressed, that impressed me as an artist, and I became one of those people who... As I went into business, I discovered what, you know, liberty versus non-liberty, what it all means. You know, it sort of emerged why there aren't more. uh, That's that's a stumper. I I guess it's the culture uh, isn't exposing people to it, particularly, like, that's always a stumper for me. Why why are all artists that I meet so hostile and kind of, they're, they're usually in the progressive camp. Like, if I go to a place and meet artists, I'm going to assume they're all progressives pretty much with maybe one or two exceptions. And the exceptions, as we said in the Wall Street Journal thing, uh, they usually have to hide in the business because you get hostility. And nobody wants hostility. Nobody wants to lose work. So it's the way the culture seems to have gone. And uh, I put my weight behind this project because I believe in the ideas behind it. I think that's a pretty good place to, to wrap up. And I'll say I agree a lot with what Paul just said, but... Four years ago, neither of these projects existed, right? Uh, there's a couple groups, the Moving Picture Institute, that's looking at getting free market ideas into, like, Hollywood. We've got Learn Liberty, which is, like, growing over the years. We've got this book that just came out. It's a New York Times number one bestseller. Like, hopefully that will spark some more interest. Um, i got to wrap it up because we want to give you a time to uh, buy a book in the hall. And um, there's a couple other comics out there that we have. Uh, some of the ones that I mentioned. Uh, so you can pick those up, and uh, they're going to sign them for you. So um, that's really cool. And uh, thanks for coming, and uh, join us for the reception outside. Thank you.